So when I was a kid, um, <laughs> we went on a lot of family trips. And notice that I said family trips, not family vacations, because this was not fun, okay? <laughs> uh, but we, my, we traveled a lot, right? Uh, and we traveled mostly from uh, my, where we lived in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania up to uh, either Connecticut to see my mom's side of the family or uh, upstate New York to go and uh, see my dad's parents and, and, and his, um, his side of the family. But anyway, both drives were like five hours, which uh, when you're a kid, like, that's a really long time, <laughs> okay? And so, um, you know, I... I got through this really long time. We did this like on a monthly basis by, um, you know, growing aware of my surroundings and uh, figuring out like how long things took. And I say becoming aware of my surroundings, but what really happened was I just asked one question like a whole lot until I finally figured it out. How much longer, <laughs> right? Or like the famous, um, are we there yet, right? And my very, very patient parents uh, walked me through how long things take. And what they actually did was they tricked me into like learning and doing math, which, you know, is fine. But, but it didn't take a whole long for me to, to figure out uh, the way that we went and, and how long each little piece of the trip took. And so it took 30 minutes to get out of Pennsylvania to New Jersey. And then it was one hour on the, the New Jersey Turnpike, one hour on the Garden State Parkway, 30 minutes on uh, Interstate 287. And then depending if we were going to New York, then two more hours on the New York State Thruway, or we would hang a right. And it would be uh, like some mixture of two hours between the Merritt Parkway, I-95, and I-395 to get to my brother's house in Connecticut. And so I knew all of this, and I had it planned out in my head. This is how long each piece takes, and we'll be there at some point in the next five hours, right? <laughs> so eventually, I also figured out how exit numbers work and how the speed limit works and like how much time it takes to get from here to there based on if mom's driving, which is 90 miles an hour, or if dad's driving, which is five under the speed limit, you know? And so, you know, uh, this, is, this is just uh, how it went. But, but here's the thing. What I really wanted to know was how to calculate how much longer it was going to take until we were no longer in New Jersey. Because... Um, no offense to like my New Jersey friends, but, but the place is like the wild, wild west of automobile situations. Like you Florida people think that I-4 is bad, but you have no idea. New Jersey is where you become really, really close with Jesus, closer than you ever knew was possible. But New Jersey was also, <laughs> New Jersey, I wanted to get out of there because New Jersey is where you got stuck. Accidents. Shore traffic. We don't have beaches. We got down the shore. That's, that's where we go. That's where everybody goes when I'm trying to get out of there, right? And so this, this two and a half hour trek from the bottom of New Jersey to the top of New Jersey is, was absolute torture. And so uh, the trip was really, really based around like how long does it take to get out of this seemingly God forsaken state? Okay. So New Jersey to me growing up was this space where like right smack in the middle of a trip, right? We were already too far from home to turn back, but we were nowhere near 
where we were going, this, this space where, where I was stuck, this space where I was just thinking to myself constantly, like wondering how much longer, where I was audibly saying, I'm so bored. So we didn't have cell phones. We had this little gaming thing called Game Boy, and when the sun went down, you couldn't play it anymore because it didn't, have, didn't light up, you know? It was like me and my sister and my mom, or just me and my dad. And then I was forced to have a conversation with them, right? <laughs> if, I, if, I was, if we were mercifully, mercifully traveling during the day and I could read a book, both my mom and my dad know how to use that, like, hey, what you reading? What's it about? Let's talk about it. I'm like, no. You know, and then they invented this thing called the disc man, which was cool, except for the roads up there are like 75% potholes. And so it just skipped the whole time. And they're just like, I would rather listen to my sister breathe than this right now, you know? And so anyway, um, you know, this space that was created during those trips was something that now looking back, it's like, man, this is, this is incredible. It was, it's some of my fondest memories, those, those times that I had to, to sit and to just be with the thing that so many people in this world wish and long for, my family. You know, this is, this is space that, that theologian people call liminal space. And, and liminal space is just a transition between two states of being. When, you, when you've left where you were, but you're not quite where you're going yet. And it kind of sounds like a concept for like, uh, you know, an album from the 70s psychedelic rock era or something. But, but this, is a, this is a common human experience. It's, it's one that we share with one another. And it's, it's one of the most pervasive themes in the story of the Bible. And so, you know, I don't know if, if you know this, but today's kind of like a special day in the life of the church. It's, it's an often overlooked week, but this is the week that we celebrate the ascension of Jesus to heaven. It's, it's, it's a time where we mark the transition for Jesus's followers from one time to another. Because up until this day, up until this time, Jesus's followers had spent the last three years just following him around, learning from him, being taught. And then there was a, a brief hiatus, a couple of days when Jesus was in the grave where they just sat around and wondered like, oh no, like, what do we do now? But then, bam, Jesus was back and they're like, hey, this is, this is great. Like, we don't have to figure it out anymore. Jesus is here. And they spent 40 more days just following Jesus around, going fishing, learning from him and thinking to themselves, this is good. This is really good because, because Jesus was dead and now everyone saw it. Every, and, and now he's alive and everyone sees this. And like his street cred has just gone up through the roof. And like we know that this has got to be the time. This has got to be the moment when everything that's broken is going to be fixed. Because look, we stand with a man who came back from the dead. And so this is where uh, we pick up our, our story in scripture today. And it's actually uh, from the very beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, and so it's Acts uh, verse one is where we start. And, and so the, the author, uh, he says this, he says, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about 
all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and after his suffering, he presented himself alive and to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so we have this author, a guy named Luke, tying this book to uh, another book that he wrote. It's, it's called Luke right? <laughs> and so it's kind of like his, his second part of his, his two-volume work. And so followed by some recap, he's like, hey, uh, Theo, previously on the Chronicles of Jesus and his people, uh, some amazing stuff happened. Jesus was here. He did stuff that blew everyone's mind, and he proved to us that he was the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. And, and when he had all of his followers on board, he said to them, stay in Jerusalem and wait for what's coming. And so now looking at, back at that, for us who probably know at least a little bit of the story of what comes next, we're like, that's, that's pretty reasonable, uh, you know? Uh, okay, sure. Uh, but the disciples, like, they don't know what's coming. Uh, they, they're really trying to understand, like, what, what is happening? But their response, it falls short. It's, it's a little bit off. And so this is what the disciples say. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? How much longer, Jesus? Are we there yet? (laughs) All of a sudden, Jesus is like a parent on a five-hour road trip. Jesus, are we there yet? Jesus, When will we get there? Jesus, I'm hungry. Jesus, I have to pee. Jesus, Peter won't stop poking me. Ew, what smells? (laughs) And we laugh, but, but seriously, like, all the disciples have the capacity to see is this right here. The the restoration of Israel has been like the sought-after hope and dream of every, every single Israelite for like 500 years at this point. They've been, they've been clobbered, subjugated, taxed, oppressed, and, and used by empire after empire, each one just a little bit more vile than the last. And, and all that they want, all that they want is just a, a minute to just like, whew, just breathe but they can't catch a break. Every leader just fails them and and sells out to Rome. Every uprising that occurs just ends up with harsher and harsher punishments. And so, yes, all that they want is to get there. (laughs) All that they want is to get out of this place where the promises that God has made to them still seem so far away from their current reality. And the implications of this are vast because Israel was, was this nation that was, was promised, promised to be God's blessing for the world. And right now, Israel is just the joke of the Roman Empire. They are, they are the armpit. They are the New Jersey of Rome, right? They're a nowhere place filled with nowhere 
people and they could be wiped off the earth and, and no one would really bat an eye. Pretty far from being the nation who's going to save the world. And so Jesus, come on now, man, do it. Restore the kingdom. Give us what you said you were going to give us. Do what you said you were going to do. And so Jesus responds. He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're, so, they're like, Jesus, are we there yet? And Jesus is like, you're not allowed to know. You're not allowed to know when we'll get there, but, but come on over here. Um, why don't you drive? You're going to restore the kingdom for me with, with my power. That's for next week, though. And all, all they're trying to figure out is, what the heck is happening? And then, and then this happens. When he had said this, and as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing up towards heaven. And suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so as Jesus departs from the disciples and they're gazing up to where he went, a familiar scene plays out. So you might remember that at the tomb of Jesus on Easter morning, two men in white robes appeared and they said this, woman, why do you look for the living among the dead? That account which signaled the transition from Jesus's death to Jesus's resurrection, which was also written by our author Luke, is echoed here. And, and now it signals another major transition, a shift from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' enthronement as the King of Kings, the, the Lord of all creation, the one who sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, some other stuff that we say, right? It's coming back. So why are you looking up there, guys? We aren't there yet. Keep your eyes on the road, Peter. Stay where you're at, John. Remember Jesus' words, guys. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise. You see, the disciples wanted Jesus to use his power to take back and reestablish Israel right now, to become the king. And what Jesus did was he became the king of the entire world. And he, he promised his disciples that, that they would be his witnesses, that they would carry his blessing, that they would be the ones who ruled on his behalf as stewards of the kingdom of God here on earth, including Israel. They would be the hands and the feet that rebuilt and restored the kingdom to Israel with his power that was coming. And the disciples just wanted to be there already. 
Jesus wanted them to sit together and to sit with him and enjoy the ride. Jesus could have said, yes, let's go. Let's go to the palace right now. Let's take this thing back. We'll be, we'll be royalty by the end of the night. But rather, he established a space. A space between the world that they were leaving and the kingdom that was to come. In fact, he created a space, a space between leaving them and truly equipping them to go and build that kingdom. Space for them to just be. Space for them to be a family. Space for them to pray. Space for them to find a replacement for Judas. Space for them to process all that had happened. Space for them to prepare for the road ahead. Space for them to stop and be in a relationship with one another and with the God that they served. Jesus gave the disciples the gift of liminal space so that they could get their bearings straight, to realign and refocus work through all of the shattered expectations that they were experiencing, all that they thought that the world would be after Jesus completed his mission. Time to, to reassess their place in all of this. Jesus gave them the gift of sitting with and feeling the tension. And I think that there's, that there's great value and, and great comfort in this detail of the story that we often forget because, you know, it's really easy for us to, to get excited on Easter. Like, yes, Jesus came back from the dead. So awesome. And, and the power that comes when we celebrate Pentecost and all the things we talk about with Peter and the disciples doing just amazing, miraculous things and building this church. But this little week right here, this little space, where Jesus is gone and the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet, this space is holy. The disciples aren't where they were, but they're not yet where they're going. And how true is this for most of us in most of our lives? I, I'm in like four liminal spaces simultaneously right now. Like the most obvious one being that we have a baby on the way and there's like literally nothing I can do about it other than, uh, you know, make sure there's like snacks. They keep rolling, you know, <laughs> just keep the snacks coming like, and, and, you know, whatever. And, but the whole time I was like, what am I supposed to do? You know, like I can't make this happen any faster than it actually is. I feel like I'm stuck in New Jersey, <laughs> stuck in, in Jerusalem. And like our lives, man, our lives are so future and goal-oriented that, that when there's nothing that we can do to force things along, to, to get where we are going or where we think we should be any faster, we lose our minds. Because we've been led to believe that, that, that times like this, that they're a waste. That the space between is where we lose momentum, where we get passed by, and where we fail. But what if? What if liminal spaces like that are actually God's prescription for our hurried lives? 
for our our one-sided, winner-takes-all, self-made, goal-oriented, if-you-ain't-first-you're-last way of viewing life. What if those spaces are where, where real and meaningful work gets done? You know, my, um, my grandma, the one who lived in upstate New York, um, she loved to bake. And I'm going to tell you something, and I hope that you don't hold it against me, but I don't really like desserts very much. But um, my grandma made the best blackberry pie. Good enough that even I would eat it. And so every summer, I'd go on one of those long family trips, and I'd spend a week or two uh, in New York at, at uh, my grandparents' house. And, and every, you know, every year, a couple of days out of that time that we spent together, my, my grandma would take me, and she'd put me in the car, and we'd start to drive up into the Adirondack Mountains on these windy roads, and she'd just pull off in like a random spot, never the same place twice, And we'd get out of the car, and she would lead me into the woods past a plethora of no trespassing signs. (laughs) (laughs) And we would, this is when I became an outlaw, and we would pick wild blackberries. And, you know, it was in those times where we would just find and pick blackberries, and, and we, would, we would talk. She would, she would tell me stories about my dad and silly stuff that he did as a kid. We would talk about tennis and talk about golf. We'd talk about Harry Potter because she bought me all of the books, and I would read them at her house every summer. We'd talk about the crazy stuff Uncle Earl was up to and uh, just how much money we were going to make when we went to the horse track tomorrow. Uh, I, I think about this, this is not, I mean, maybe it's the best way to be a grandparent. I don't know. But, you know, um, (laughs) the funny thing is about all of that is that most of the time, like, I didn't want to get in the car. I didn't want to drive into the mountains. I didn't want to go break the law with my grandma, you know? Uh, (laughs) I I just wanted to stay at her house and play video games. But the other funny thing is that I knew pie was coming. You know, I knew what the reward was. But still, I don't remember a single memory vividly of eating that pie. What I remember is hiking through those woods vividly. I remember her laugh. I remember her deep excitement when we found a good spot. I remember how she would brag about how many blackberries that I found, that I picked to all of my family. See, picking berries was just like this space between playing video games and eating pie, but it's the only thing that I really, really remember. And I think that the disciples, I think that they remembered those 10 days between when Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came. They used their hands to hold on to one another. They use their hands to hold on to God in prayer. And I think that if we are honest, that we're in this kind of space now. I mean, globally, as a community, we're just like, we've been asked, like, are we there yet? Like, how long, how much longer? Like, I, I, I want to see faces. I want to talk without smelling my own breath, you know? Uh, <laughs> I just like, 
want things to be normal again. But if we're honest, this is how we live, and this is where we are as individuals. And I don't know like what your what your liminal space is that, that you're living in right now, but I do know that time spent obsessing about where you want to be or where you think you should be is time that you miss out on actually doing what it is that you're meant to do right here and right now. And so how, how have you been neglecting your family? How have you been neglecting your friends, your God? How have you been so busy trying to manufacture the future been so busy trying to find something to do with your hands right now that you've forgotten to, to hold on to those around you, to hold on to your church. Because the reality is that New Jersey, Jerusalem, and trespassing in Blackberry Fields, these are all the places where God does some of his best work where he binds us together through the shared experience of just being and waiting and longing for the kingdom to be restored. And the blessing is that, that we know, we know deep down that the kingdom has a king and that the king is coming. So are we there yet? No. <laughs> How much longer? I don't know. But imagine what we can do together while we wait. So let's pray. God, we, we thank you. We thank you for the space that you create in our lives for us to just do some of your best work. To hold on to one another. And to, to hold on to you and just be vessels of your kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that you have asked us to build alongside of you. And God, so we just ask that you would remind us day in and day out that in this space, the little messes that we have in our lives or the, the grand scheme of history, that in this space that we live in while we wait for you to come, that you're with us. We thank you for the gift. We thank you for the tension. We thank you for the, the wondering and the, the waiting. We thank you because we know that you are speaking in and through us. And so God, use this time. Use this time to use us to be your church. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.